To the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. If you don't have your Bibles, you can take the blue Bible, the blue book that's in the chair or pew, turn to page 950. Romans chapter 16. Yes, we're in the last chapter. (laughs) As is sometimes the case in a last section of a letter like this, there is quite an array of things that are brought to bear. It's kind of like if you get your your little boy's been playing outside and you have him empty his pockets, you know, you might find anything in there, you know, like a a screw, a rock, a piece of paper, a bug. Uh, We'll never forget Kay was talking to Chase and he had a worm in his hand. And she said, oh, you've got a worm. Show me the worm. Well, he opened his hand and it had been squeezed in half, you know, just (laughs) sheer force of a little boy. You might find anything. And, uh, but we're going to group everything under three basic headings in this chapter. Uh, greetings, warnings, and blessing. Greetings, warnings, and blessing. Famous acronym uh, GWB. <laughs> now, as I read this uh, first portion especially, I'm going to... Uh, try to use kind of close to the, the Greek pronunciation. So if they're a little weird, it's because I'm trying to follow something of the, the Greek pronunciation on these names. And I'm sure I'll fumble over them, so bear with me. <clears throat> Romans 16.1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Concrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. And that's a commendation, but we're kind of including it in the greetings, which now start in verse 3. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks, literally, that's the way it reads, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsmen 
Herodian, greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who's worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who's been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobos, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympos. And all the saints who are with them greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Aristus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore. Through Jesus Christ, amen. Uh, Let us pray. O Lord, we ask you to reveal the Lord Jesus to us. Reveal, Lord, your salvation, how you work amongst your people, how you will work amongst us. Teach us, Lord, the great truths of your word, the blessed gospel. May we rehearse and enrich ourselves in that great gospel, for we ask it in the precious name of Christ. Amen. He begins with this commendation of Phoebe, who is likely the one who's taking the letter. Picture Paul in Corinth. Cancrea is the port city for Corinth, and it's about eight miles east of Corinth. So she's passing through, must have known this obviously, she's passing through Corinth on her way to do business in Rome, and she's going to take the letter. And if you're traveling in the Roman Empire, you always need letters of commendation so people get the connection, who you are, uh, who you know, uh, who you are with. She's called actually a servant. This, this word can be translated deacon. And most commentators would point to that as a better translation. Uh, even though the office of deacon is not fully formed at this point, it was a way to say that she was officially recognized as a, a true servant of the church in her ministry to others. And you notice that she's a patron, which probably means that she's a woman of some means and had assisted many, many people through that, especially in this port city where there's so much travel going on in and out, so much opportunity to minister in the uh, cause of Christ. Uh, Also, the the recommendation or the urging them 
to help her in what she may need from you. Now, it's a little hidden in the translation, but it may indicate that she's got a law concern that she's taken to Rome. One of the words that's used here may indicate that. So uh, these people who are uh, slaves and freedmen, both are the, the names that are used here refer to both of those and then some regular citizens. Uh, would indicate connections to different houses, connections probably even to the imperial household. And so they would be able to give her the kind of connection she needs to do her business there in Rome and the kind of uh, connections perhaps in, in how uh, the law is to be regarded in Rome and how to do her particular work. But just a, just a little feel for her life that is so richly varied. She is managing a lot of things, traveling, uh, bringing business, uh, doing business of some sort to Rome, and they're helping her in this very rich, everyday way. Uh, it reminded me of uh, a great quote, a little shout-out to Aaron Morgan, but at the bottom of her uh, uh, emails, she has this great quote from The Four Loves, Uh, from C.S. Lewis, and it reads this way. Our model is the Jesus not only of Calvary, but of the workshop, the roads, the crowds, the clamorous demands and surly oppositions, the lack of all peace and privacy, the interruptions. For this, so strangely unlike anything we can attribute to the divine life in itself, is apparently not only like, but is the divine life operating under human conditions. A great encouragement because you get a little slice of just the everyday business and travel and pressures and work that Phoebe is is connected with and all that would gather around her and helping her in everyday affairs. And it gives you a feel for how the divine life itself, even when Jesus was here, it was marked by these demands and oppositions and roads and crowds, the workshop, the lack of peace and privacy, the interruptions. So join Jesus, right? Join Jesus in normal everyday life. That is to be lived gloriously in the presence of God and not to be looked upon as something other than purely wonderfully spiritual with his presence engaged in every single thing that you do, no matter how difficult, no matter how mundane, no matter how everyday, no matter how challenging, no matter how uh, obnoxious it may be. All of these things Jesus faced without end. And this was the divine life manifesting itself, operating under human conditions. And as he brings his life into us, it will operate in the same way. So rejoice. Rejoice in your everyday things that God has called you to. Uh, Whether in family, whether in the neighborhood, whether at work, uh, in whatever way, these are the things God has called us to and we're to live out his grace in those ways. Well, he gives these greetings then, and we're struck with several things about these. We we don't have time to cover every name and try to figure out everything about them, but uh, a few things can be said. Uh, There's a unity and diversity amongst these people. We we can see from the names that it's largely slaves and freedmen, just from the names, which 
is the makeup of the society of Rome. They say if, if just the, the makeup of these people uh, is what it looks to be, it, it, it's just a slice of the community of Rome right there in the church. And you see both Greeks, and several times he talks about my kinsmen. So there are Greeks, uh, Gentiles, and Jews. There are people from all different classes. And you get the feel, though, that they are united in the one work of Jesus Christ. That's mentioned several times, isn't it? My fellow workers, my fellow prisoners, uh, people who've identified with me, who, people who have suffered with me. But you get the idea that this, the whole church is fixed upon this one labor in the gospel. So that there's a unity in our one hope of the gospel and the one desire that this gospel would be lived out in the community and that it would be made known outside of the community. Uh, the kiss that he mentions in verse 16 is the sign of unity of the, and affection as well as how he describes people in Christ and he describes them as beloved So the warm affection and unity of people that are diverse. Now, church growth years ago pushed homogeneity. That is, that that churches should look the same, that that was advantageous for growth. You know, get your slice of who you're going to have and stick with that because that will help grow a church. And... The, the early church didn't know anything of this, really. It was, it was everybody all gathered into one. In fact, the diversity manifested the glory of the gospel. And so I would urge us to think along these same lines, to, to make this our prayer, that our church more and more and more would just bear the marks of the slice or the cut of our community. Uh, I think that means more minorities would be a part of our church. Uh, I think that it means that many poor from, say, apartments, but there are others that are pretty well off that are in the the vicinity as well. So we, we wouldn't be prejudiced toward one or the other, but to embrace all and say, Lord, make us look like our community. Make us reflect our community. It may mean that even our worship has to take on some different looks about it so that it really has the flavor of our community. It could be a challenge for everybody because we, we like this kind of music. We like that kind of music. Uh, but we may need to be open for something that embraces more and more people and has a richer diversity even in its uh, worship expression. And so we have the opportunity here to have this wonderful, warm affection for one another that crosses every kind of line because we are fixed on the one hope of Jesus Christ, united in our trust in His salvation and united in our desire to labor for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so uh, may God bring this about in our lives. He gives a warning There's also just thrown in here is the greeting from Timothy and Gaius and the like who are, and and I just include that with this, uh, the the greetings that he's bringing from him to them as well. But there's a warning here, isn't it? Verses 17 and following, uh, to watch out for those who cause divisions, create obstacles. Now, for all the consideration and study, we really don't know for sure what kind of... uh, 
false teaching he's referring to here. And he may just mean whatever kind of false teaching, whatever opposes the doctrine uh, that we have uh, brought to you. But just wanted to point something out that I think is very important. He says, verse 18, such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, their own belly, literally. And some have thought this may refer to some food issues, uh, Jewish food problems and the like, uh, or it may refer to a particular kind of desires that they have. But I think it's more of a metaphor that they're basically out for themselves. They're not out for Christ. They're not out to teach the word as they have received it, but they're out for themselves. And, and I want to bring another passage to your attention uh, that is so similar to this. This is in Philippians 3, uh, verse 13. This is on page 981. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He talks about the transformation that will happen when he comes. But the, the contrast is, our hope and desire is for Christ and his appearing, their hope and their desire is for this world. Their their, um, end is destruction. Their God is their belly, strikingly like this passage. So here's the point, that when we begin to have heart problems, that is, issues of obedience, issues of submission to God's Word, issues sometimes of purity, issues of relational uh, brokenness, we begin to think, we begin to make the Word into our own image. We begin to want the Word to conform to what we need it to be or want it to be. And this can create every kind of problem. And, of course, we see in some of its sad, most dramatic ways in some of the things that go on on TV where men apparently are bent on acquiring millions of dollars of property and planes and whatever else, and terribly what they preach is no longer the gospel. You can hear some men preach for 40 minutes and they hardly ever mention the name of Jesus Christ. And it is not a preaching and an opening up of the Word of God. It is simply a man's opinion about this or that thing. And sadly, many of these people Of them, it could be said, they're not serving our Lord Christ. How could they be serving our Lord Christ? How could they be focused on what Christ has said? I had a man years ago of a certain persuasion. Uh, It was charismatic persuasion. And I don't put everybody in, you know, a certain category because they're charismatic. But it's just interesting what he said to me. Uh, We were both part of a right to life uh, organization. He was president. I was vice president. And he stopped me after uh, our meeting and he kind of pulled me off to the side like he was going to sell me drugs or something. You know, like it's kind of undercover kind of thing going on. 
And I'm like, okay, what's going on? You know, he says, and this is, this is really what he says. He says, do you like to study the Bible? You know, I'm just like, I said, well, yeah, I study it all the time. He says, I do too. <laughs> None of his charismatic friends studied the Bible. That was his point, you know. Like, he was sneaking around like, like he had a Playboy, but it was the Bible, you know. He's like, I, I've, I've got the Bible here. Look, ha-ha, I'm studying it. Because he said all of his friends, and I'm not saying this is the case across the charismatic board, okay, but it's indicative of what can happen in church after church where he said all of his friends, he said, they just get up on Sunday morning and they just say whatever comes to mind. And he said, and they don't regularly study the, the Word of God. Well, inevitably, inevitably, if, if, if ministers are not focusing their minds and giving themselves to the Word of God, and if we're not humbly coming before him and saying, Oh, Lord, search me and see if there be any evil way, hurtful way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. I mean, I've got to have that attitude. You've got to have that attitude. We've got to say, Lord, if there's anything that I'm bringing to the table that would distort your word, that would make me want to say this instead of that because I want to say it even though you don't say it in your word, Lord. There are these hurtful, evil things in my heart. Oh, Lord, open up my heart that I, that I would see them and they would not influence me. And so it shows in this passage the need to grow in holiness and obedience in order to be able to teach the Word. Now, let me just mention to you a striking passage that almost seems to say too much, you know, one of those passages that says, really? And this is Paul speaking to Timothy, the the younger minister, and the, this is in his letter to Timothy. This is Timothy chapter 4, the last verse. He says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. But what I think is so interesting, he says, Watch yourself and watch your teaching. Because if you're watching yourself to grow in grace and to receive the Word and to bend yourself toward that Word and to humble yourself before that Word and, and to obey that Word, then you will be able to teach that Word. And only then, as you're keeping a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, will you save yourself and save your hearers. The indication is that if men do not have an eye on their own heart, conforming it to God and being broken before God, then the danger is that they may subtly, over a period of time, lead people away from Jesus. And it can show itself in just the way a minister speaks. And for this, I, you know, I, I'm really fearful and, and want so much for this to be a part of my life that if, if I'm not dealing closely with the Word, how can I help you deal closely with the Word, right? If I'm not humbling myself, if I'm not having the Word incisively cut into my heart, how can I bring that to you as well? And uh, I believe the Lord is, is working in my heart to this end as well. Well, the final thing to be said, there's the greeting, there's this warning 
but there's also blessing. And, and I'm including blessing, both the blessing of God in verses 25 through 27, and then God's blessing upon us, which occurs in verses 20, uh, in verse 20. But this, this blessing, this great ending of Romans, uh, and what an appropriate way to end this uh, whole letter of praise to God's great salvation. Uh, really a praise of God's great gospel. And that's how we began this in chapter 1, with the power of the gospel. In fact, you'll find that the themes of verses 1, one through 5, the very first verses, are found again here. So it's kind of like an inclusion, okay? Like he began here, he ends here. The same themes are there, beginning to end. So he brings closure to everything he began with. And this great uh, statement in verse 25, to him who is able. Recall to you Ephesians 3.20, to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Or Jude 1, verses 24 and 25, now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And to him who's able to strengthen you. And the word here to strengthen is establish you to firmly root you in Christ. Uh, it's used many times, uh, like in 1 Thessalonians 3, 2. He said, we sent Timothy uh, to establish you in your faith. Or he talks about God in 1 Thessalonians 3, that he will establish your heart blameless before God our Father, and so on. So the, this is one of those words where if you're going to take a tree and just root it, Firmly in the, in the ground and with rich supply of water. That's what he's talking about here. The word is used constantly in Scripture to establish you. But how encouraging to the one who's able, who has all power to establish you in Christ. Every single one of you. And it's not like we should have a congregation where, of course, if People are new Christians. They're slowly being established in this faith. But eventually, every single believer is to be established, rooted in Christ, able to trust Him and live for His glory and to love others in all circumstances, basically. No matter what the difficulty, to continue to trust Him, to continue to find joy in Him and to know His presence and to continue to spend your life for others no matter what. That's being established in him. And he has all power to do this, to strengthen you according to this gospel. And along these lines, we can read verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We, we mentioned this last week, but that's quite an interesting combination. The God of all peace. Peace. Crush Satan under your feet. You know, like it, it, it gives you a different understanding of what peace must mean. That peace is shalom. Shalom means wholeness. Wholeness means all evil is removed from the scene. So Satan has to be vanquished. He has to be removed. All evil, all sin is gone. And this shows you God's intent 
what he is going to do. But notice, it's not just to crush Satan out there separate, but crush Satan under your feet. What in the world? You and I, in union with Jesus Christ, are now participating in the defeat of Satan. That's why James 4, 7, he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The word flee is a word for war when you've routed the enemy and he is running for his life. That's the terminology used there. We read in uh, Colossians 2 that he has exposed them, that he has defeated the enemy uh, of spiritual powers like a Roman general would Bring them through the streets, chained and naked, headed for their death. He says, this is what Christ has done against your enemy. And so Jesus can say, the God of this world now is cast out. That's why he can say, stand strong in the Lord, Ephesians 6, against the enemy. Why he can say in 1 Peter that though he does go about like a roaring lion, which we read earlier, still resist him firm in your faith. And so we must expect this great work. That's why we pray for it. Deliver us from, probably the best translation, the evil one. He loves to deliver you from the evil one. He loves to crush Satan under your feet. And there will be an ultimate crushing of Satan as we participate in the final reign of Jesus, as we somehow, some way are joined in judging the angels themselves And we participate in some way of that statement in Revelation that we will break the nations like a pot. That we participate in some way in the final judgment and that he will be crushed under our feet. Brothers and sisters, at least this much, if if he is headed for that, then don't give any part of your life into his keeping don't return in any way to put yourself under the control of the one from whom you've been set free. You've been delivered out of darkness and now you belong to Jesus Christ. You do not belong to him anymore. And so resist him. This is the constant message that expects that you will be able to more and more to resist him. What is the area for you? What is the area for you? Is it one of anxiety? Is it one of fear? Is it one of, of, of temptation in other ways? Is it one of anger? Is it one of prayerlessness? Is it one of you won't give yourself to the word no matter what? Is it one of fear of, of sharing the gospel with others? So many different areas, of course. And I don't want to say that you know it's always Satan at every point, but in one sense, it's always Satan because, as it says in 1 John 5, the whole world lies in the hand of the evil one. So anything that opposes God, you can trace its lines to Satan, which all the more should make us say, absolutely not. As Jesus said, you're a murderer and a liar from the beginning. Give me grace. Give me grace, Lord, not to put myself in the hands of the liar and the murderer, but to put myself constantly in the hands of the one who died for me. Think of the difference. He sacrificed his life for me that he might embrace me and deliver me from myself. He is the murderer and the liar from the beginning. 
God will soon, this God of wholeness will crush Satan under your feet. The grace of Christ is with you to do that. The grace of Christ. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. It's not because we've obeyed up to this point so well that God says, as a reward of your great obedience. Now, no, it's just salvation. Pure grace of God that will continually deliver us. If Jesus puts in our lips, deliver us from the evil one, he means to deliver us from the evil one. Right? He will answer that prayer. How will he not when he commands you to pray that? It is his will that more and more we would be delivered. But notice, it's he will strengthen you according to my gospel. The good news, the proclamation of Jesus Christ, of who Christ is, what Christ has accomplished. And you could read this, my gospel, that is the preaching of Jesus Christ. Because he is the gospel. As Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 1, he he says the word, and then he says, calls the word a synonym, the cross of Christ. Or in the next verse, he says, verse 18, the word of the cross. That's the gospel, is the word of the cross. Or as he says later, 1 Corinthians, I knew nothing among you save Christ and him crucified. It is Christ that we proclaim. We preach Christ crucified. And then, to me, the most lovely statement of preaching, uh, he says, this grace was given to me, the least of all saints, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ. But brothers and sisters, that's how you will be established. Not by just trying, 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 but... Be established in the gospel, the proclamation of Christ, the unsearchable riches of Christ, to be constantly searching out who is he, what is he, what has he done for me, how does the Old Testament help me get more of Christ, how do the letters teach me about Christ, of course the gospels, how do they unveil Christ, how do everything, how can Christ be unveiled to me? It is as you root yourself in Christ that you will be established. Then he calls this gospel and preaching of Christ the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret. Now, this isn't a mystery like the Gnostics where if you meditate long enough and hard enough, you get into higher and higher levels and you enter into seeing God, you know, like that. Uh, But this is a way to describe how in the Old Testament... It was revealed, but it wasn't fully revealed. And, and that's why he even says that the mystery was kept secret, but it's been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known. That's the Old Testament. So this mystery was kept secret. Now it's disclosed. And through the prophetic writings, it's been made known. So there's this tension of the word, the, the, the glory of Christ there in the Old Testament. It was there because as he began this whole letter, he says, this gospel which he promised beforehand through his prophets. Okay? Or if you read in First Peter, Peter talks about how the prophets were searching to try to figure out what, who is this person, this sufferings of this Messiah and the glories? What is this talking about? 
So there was a revelation of sort, but it wasn't fully revealed at that time until the actual coming of Christ and the full revelation. And I've mentioned this before, but it's like a cave that has barely an opening. And this would be the Old Testament. You could see some of the light and see some of the pretty stalagmites and stalactites, you know, but the opening was pretty small. But then the opening has been made wide, 100 feet across. Light pours in. And not only do you see the glorious stalactites and stalagmites, but you start finding that there's buried treasure everywhere you look. Gold and silver and jewels everywhere you look. That's, that's how the Old Testament is. We, we now have the full light of Christ shining into the Old Testament so that this mystery, this revealed yet hidden thing is now completely disclosed and now has made known to all the nations. And this recalls how in Genesis 12, all the families of the earth will be blessed in you, Abraham. He repeats this to Jacob. He says in Isaiah 49, I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Passage after passage, we don't have time to mention them all, but dozens of passages talk about how the salvation of God is going to reach out to all the earth. And Paul says, it is happening now. This this gospel, this preaching of Christ, this mystery that was uh, half hidden now is burst open and it's being declared to all the nations with this great end in view that there would be this obedience of faith. It's wonderful that faith is the obedience God is looking for to trust Him, to entrust your life into His hands fully, to trust His goodness, to trust His greatness, to trust His power, to trust His wisdom, to trust His purpose and design for your life, trust in His presence with you, trust in His Word and His promises, however hard it is at times to trust His promises. And all of this is yours in Christ Jesus. And... Of course, it includes not only this initial faith that is obedience, but then the constant rush of obedience that comes from believing in Him. God is bringing this about in all the nations. This is how you and I show forth our honor to Him, is we trust Him. So unlike the Israelites who did not trust Him as they came up to the land You remember what the Lord said, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? Or in Psalm 106, it says, they despise the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. Well, for you and me, faith brings about, as we trust him, this admiration of him and the love for him, which are the foundations of obedience. You believe in His goodness to you in Christ and you believe that sacrificing everything for Christ is is the way to have true riches in this life and the next. And you follow Him no matter what the cost. This kind of obedience, though, only comes from admiration. Admiration. Which, of course, is rooted in faith, in trusting in Him. He is bringing about that faith among all the nations. And I think it's so encouraging that he says here that this is all according to the command of the eternal God. 
How wonderful is, the, is it that He commands you not to do all the right things initially. He commands you, simply trust in my salvation. Trust in my Son. I have offered Him up for you. He commands you not to try and make it on your own, not to try to do enough good works, but He commands you to receive the great work that He has accomplished in Christ. He so loved the world that He gave His Son so that you could trust in Him to have all your sins taken away so that you would have no judgment from God. He commands this to you. He commands you to trust Him. And Paul then concludes with this great uh, statement to the only wise God be glory forever and, and ever. This God who... It's amazing that through Christ, God is going to be glorified. It is through Christ that He's chosen to be glorified. And, and the amazing wisdom of God, He turns everything on its head. He goes forth in the greatest power, and yet it looks like the greatest weakness on the cross. He reveals His glory to us by laying aside His glory and becoming humble before us. He shows His true kingship by this humility. And he shows in his kingdom that those who are great must be servants. What a wise God. What a wise and glorious God to bring about this salvation in which we worship and adore him and follow him because he has loved us in Christ Jesus. Well, the only life of happiness is this life of living for the glory of God. The only life of happiness that we have is living for his glory to do everything in the atmosphere of an overflowing admiration of God, to do everything with at least this silent expression, Oh, Lord, you are wonderful. And I pray that this will be your life, that you will so trust in Christ and so search out Christ in the precious gospel that every day of your life will be marked by this flavor, this atmosphere, Oh, Lord, you are wonderful in all that you do. He is he's doing all things so that we might live in this glorious condition of a happy, breathless admiration. If we're not, we're losing our humanity. We're really losing our humanity. And we're folding in on ourselves instead of walking in the glorious, uh, in, the, in the wonder of this glory of living for His honor. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that You will establish us in Christ, that You will crush Satan under our feet by this glorious gospel which makes known the beauty in, uh, of Jesus, this gospel that is now completely unveiled for us. Lord, that we will embrace it and live it out that we will live to your glory and honor. We will live in a happy admiration for this God, being able to say constantly, Oh, Lord, how wonderful is your name. Bless us, Lord, that we will live in this vigorous way by the powerful gospel, this gospel that is the power of God for salvation. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. 
Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night, and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away?